it is proven that if your skin is closer to white, you do get better opportunities. It is just a proven fact, study after study. And that's because of the pervasiveness of white supremacy and racism in our country and in our society. Hi, I'm Eric Ostro, host of Live at the Lord Tell. For season two, while theaters are still closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are turning our focus to discuss the reckoning the theater community is facing for its history of systemic racism. We also wanted to give theater artists a platform to share their thoughts on the political and social changes in our country and how they envision the future of the American theater. I will be sharing my hosting duties with members of the BIPOC community to provide our audience with different perspectives and new ideas. It is our sincere hope these conversations will help us all learn from one another and begin the healing process. I'd like to start off by introducing my co-host for the afternoon, one of my dearest friends and one of the most talented artists I know, Joy D. Michelle Moore. Welcome, Joy. Exciting day for us. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you. Why don't you do the honor of introducing our magnificent guest today? Oh, wow. So today we have Katori Hall. She is a sister hailing from Memphis, Tennessee, a wonderful playwright, filmmaker. I saw your incredible short film that you did as well. And um, also a showrunner and creator of Pea Valley. So she's been just awarded the nomination for Tina, the Tina Turner story, the musical. And that's very exciting. And we're excited to have you here today, Katori. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Pleasure. Like I said before, I've been banging down your publicist's door to get you in last year, but I know you had a very busy year. Let's just first say congratulations. Yesterday, you were nominated for a Tony Award. It was a day. It was I bet. You want to tell us a little bit about it? I kind of had forgotten that the awards were being announced because I had a meeting to start thinking about my will. (laughs) So I was in death mode. But my agent, he texted me and I was like on the phone. He was like, congrats. I was like, what happened? (laughs) And then he was like, <laughs> I was like, oh shit. <laughs> so I called him really quickly and then we watched it a little bit together. We were FaceTiming and then all of the congratulations started rolling in. It was funny because my mama, who is, she'd be on Facebook, y'all. Like, she don't ever miss nothing and she missed it too. I had to call her and oh. Later in the day, I was like, it was like 9 p.m. I was like, Mom, we got nominated for 12 Tonys. And she was like, what? Oh, she missed it. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, you better get your Facebook game back up. While we're talking about Tina, which was incredible, magnetic, exciting, thrilling show. You want to talk a little bit about your journey with the Tina Turner musical? I'm a gay boy from New York who's been obsessed with Tina Turner his whole life. So I couldn't wait for this musical to come. I hope we pleased you. Oh, beyond. So I remember getting a call from the producer, Tally Bellman. Tally was one of the producers of my play, The Mountaintop, that was on the West End and eventually came to Broadway. And we kind of had fallen out of touch. We were like, just reach out every once in a while. But she was like, boy, do I have a project for you. So I remember I was actually in London working on another play at the National. And I remember we had tea at the Wosley. 
and she passed over like all of these Tina autobiographies and this draft that had already been done. And she was like, we need you for this project. Tina Turner had already given her the okay to move forward with a musical interpretation of her life. And Tina very specifically asked for a Black woman from the South. And Tally was like, boy, do I have somebody for you. (laughs) So it was so beautiful that previous connection paid off. And so I remember delving back into her story. I think I was around 12 when the movie What's Love Got To Do With It came out. And we quote lines in their music lyrics. It's just a part of the cultural lexicon, so to speak. But I was very interested in the ways I could retell the story, reframe it, especially since there were still some questions that she wanted answered in terms of her life. Like she kept on asking in interviews that we eventually had, like, why did I stay in terms of the domestic abuse that she suffered with Ike? And so I remember I had to be ferreted secretly to Switzerland and sit down oh, wow. and I remember walking into, I'll call it a castle. She probably would call it a castle. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I remember walking in and she was sitting at this glass table and she was just sitting there so poised and just so polished. And I was like, oh my God, you know, that's a fangirl. Immediately we had this connection. And I think it was that Tennessee soil that we're both from. And I just remember saying, Tina! And she just looked at me and smiled like, oh, this is Katori! And from jump, we just had an amazing connection. And she sat there for hours and hours and hours on end and answered, re-answered all of these questions. Obviously, people think they know her story, but I think what's very interesting is like when you get older, you start rethinking how your narrative has been shaped and how you can try to correct some wrongs and make sure that you revise things before you move on to the other side, so to speak. So I was just so grateful to have that time with her. And she was a part of every part of the process. She read all the drafts. She went to all the workshops. She was a part of casting Adrian Warren. She is just so vibrant and so real and so raw. And I think that's why her story is the story of a Shiro and it is so iconic and it is everlasting. And I think being able to take all of the ups and downs and put them in this musical that we shaped and worked so hard with her on has just been one of the greatest blessings of my life. I always say that I feel as though I have found the Tina Turner in myself by working on this musical. I know Joy has a question here, but I gotta ask, being such a Tina fangirl myself, I mean, obsessed. I love it! What is it like being in the presence of this, to me, goddess? Yes, I will say it's life-changing. Just going back to what I just said, finding the Tina Turner in myself. Yes, she is this goddess. Yes, she has smashed through concrete barriers and reshaped the entire musical landscape, right? Worldwide. And yet there's a great humility to her. And I don't know if it's because of her upbringing. I don't know if it's because of just all of the hardships that she's gone through, but her goddessness lives right along her humanity. 
Mm. And that's why I think I was able to make such an amazing connection with her from jump because she's still that little girl from Tennessee. She's still anime book in a way. And I think that's very surprising to people. She's such a special human being and so calming. And the fact that what she has gone through would have put a lot of people in their graves. And yet she is standing on top of a mountaintop. I must touch on the play, Hot Wing King, which unfortunately closed way too early. I loved this play. And yes, as you can see, I'm not a black man, but... I am a gay man, and it's such an interesting story. And I know some backstory about it. I mean, it's based on a relationship yeah. your brother has. And can you talk a little bit about the process of writing this play? And can you touch a little bit on the Luther experience, too? <laughs> so Halloween King is about this couple, this Black gay couple living down in Memphis, Tennessee now, and Cordell has recently come out of the closet and it's really about him rebooting his life and connecting and starting anew with his beau, Dwayne. And they are in the midst of an amazing weekend where they're getting together their new wing order, which is their hot wing click. And so they're trying to win this hot wing king crown that Memphis has every year. And unfortunately, they end up getting a party crasher in the form of Dwayne's nephew, EJ. And so the play is really about what is the definition of a family, especially in the African-American community. Oftentimes, there are these stereotypes of like, oh, there's a single mother holding down the four. And then there's this kind of aspirational kind of possible visual articulation. And so for me, I was like, no, these are two men who are in love with each other and they're trying to figure out how to be in a committed relationship and how to define family for themselves. Like this is the family that you choose and also the family that you inherit. And so interestingly enough, I'm not a gay black man, but my brother is definitely inspired by him and his relationship with his partner and how for 12 years there was this struggle and his partner also came out very late in life. He was married, had children mm -hmm. and when his wife left him, it was this moment of like, who am I really? When I asked my, I call my common law brother-in-law, when I asked, you know, are you gay or are you bi? He goes, I'm just a man who fell in love with your brother. Oh, and I wow. just think that's so beautiful. You fall in love with who you fall in love with. And I really wanted to be able to put that on stage because I just think, well, we never really get to see Black gay couples <laughs> on stage. We don't get to really see it on screen. And so part of my mission statement has always been, like, how do I make sure I shine a spotlight on underrepresented communities, misrepresented communities, allowing people whose voices have been diminished, like just giving them the platform, giving them the mic. I was so overjoyed that even though there are these beautiful men on stage of various sexual identities, people were able to see themselves and just see family. And our audience was so diverse. Quite frankly, I think that has a lot to do with the fact that Signature Theater, they keep those ticket prices low so that everybody feels welcome. But it was beautiful to see the diversity that was in the audience. Because oftentimes, I think, particularly actors of color, don't get an opportunity to see that out in the audience. But it was amazing. And so in terms of the Luther experience you were talking about, 
So, this new wine order, they are very good singers too. And so, as they're preparing the hot wings for the competition for the next day, they take their break. And it ends up being a song break. And we sing Luther's Never Too Much, Never Too Much, Never Too Much. Yeah, and you do the whole, they do the whole thing. thing. You do the whole song. You had a family reunion experience. It was a family reunion. And then you see them dancing, you see them connecting, and then you see these two men, Cordell and Dwayne, in complete utter love. And it's beautiful. And I think people who are in the know in terms of Luther Vandross, he had struggles in terms of being forced to stay in the closet, like being this R&B crooner mm-hmm. that created songs that lots of babies were made to, him being a same gender loving man as well. And so it was just kind of a wink to that history as well. And just showing can, the family reunion moment on our stage. You can feel that there was electricity that went through the audience the night I was there when oh, that song came out. And I just they kept saying, they, they sing what they do. Yeah, there was a lot of more elderly people, but they were moving. <laughs> they, be moving. They, they were moving, and me for sure. And I just kept hoping, please don't let the song end. Please just take it right to the end. And you went right to the end. And unfortunately, they had to close due to COVID, which is heartbreaking. So I hope the show has a life after when we come back, because I think it was a beautiful story. And I loved it so, so much. Thank you. you were talking so. about representing and giving voice to these marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. I'm segueing into P Valley. Yes. And for me, you literally went inside and then went inside and then went inside again <laughs> and found a part of our culture mm-hmm. to bring to life and to really represent in a way that shows the strength and not just the emotional strength that these women have to endure, but the physical strength as well, because they are killing it on impulse. Yes. <laughs> and the hustle and the ingenuity and the vision and the hope that these women have. Because my girlfriend called me and she was like, you got to watch it. The thespian in me was like, I don't feel like watching a show about some girls on a pole and they black and they're in the South. I'm from the South. They about to make them look bad. and Like, I'm not doing it. She was like, girl, look, I'm telling you, you need to watch it. And the thespian in me just took a back seat. Mm-hmm. And the Southern woman in me, mm-hmm. I felt like I wanted to go to the bank and, <laughs> and tell Clifford to get them girls to do a voter registration. <laughs> So with that, how were you able to tell the story where they weren't overly sexualized and they were humanized in the way that they were? I didn't feel like I was watching the white gays and I didn't feel like I was watching the male gays. Mm -hmm. I was truly involved and caring about these people. How were you able to accomplish that and not make it look like a BET after hours extended video? (laughs) <laughs> it could have went that way. <laughs> it really could have. I think, number one, it just started with the base. And with me being this Black woman from the South herself, growing up knowing that these women were human beings. Like, I used to go to the strip club all the time. And when I would go into that space, I would be just overwhelmed by these amazing athletes they weren't just women taking off their clothes. They were women 
showing us an art form. I remember like watching this girl flip upside down, holding herself with one arm. And then I remember seeing one girl holding another girl up while she was upside down. It was just stunning to me. It felt like I was watching the Cirque du Soleil performance and not like a strip club performance. And so I even tried to take some pole dancing classes myself. It did not work out. I almost ran out. I almost vomited over everything. And that <laughs> moment where I'm like, oh my God, this work is hard. I had sat in the seats and looked at it and thrown my own dollars. But to be able to use my body and to see my core strength, I was like, wow, this is actually this dance. This art form is actually very empowering. Mm -hmm. And so what ended up happening was I started interviewing as many women as I could. Because I really wanted to understand from their perspective, why? Why did you choose this? Or did this dance choose you? And so I interviewed over 40 women. I went to as many clubs all across the nation. It was really about just seeing their humanity, seeing them with their husbands, seeing them with their daughters, their sons, sometimes their wives, and seeing that they were just like me. And so fast forward, when I got this opportunity to take what had become a play and change it into a television show, I was hell bent on that story being centered through the female gaze. And so I remember interviewing people and I interviewed some guys and I was like, what is your definition of the female gaze? Like, how are you going to make sure that we are seeing these women in a humanistic light and not in this kind of like salacious and seedy light? And Interestingly enough, the men, they really couldn't think of any answers. And I think it had a lot to do with the fact that they just weren't women. They didn't have to think about how, as a woman, you go and you watch cinema that is constantly denigrating you or objectifying you. Like I think about The Sopranos, how when you go to the bada bing, you just see a titties and A just wobbling in the back. And they're just a backdrop. And I wanted these women to be center stage. And so the women who ended up getting the jobs as directors, they had plans. They knew how to deal with the nudity. They knew that we were going to be celebrating a woman's body, but not for how a woman's body looks, for what a woman's body can do. Yes. And centering it on the athleticism and the craft, I think, really allowed us to make sure that we were celebrating these women's strength, their flexibility, and the fact that they were truly artists. And so I think that was the way that we were able to make sure that we were placing the audience in the high heel platforms of these women and not just kind of like constantly gazing at them and defining them by their bodies. It was amazing to me, the cinematography for it and the way it's filmed, the different point of views are fascinating and so interesting, which I had never really seen in the show before. I kind of felt like I was them for a moment, like what it was like to have what they're wearing and the heels that they wear felt very wobbly. And that to me was incredible. You felt that, you felt what it was like for them to have that Mm, unstableness underneath them even though of course they can walk in them and their athleticism is unbelievable but, but the filming of it is incredible one of the most courageous things i've seen on television when it comes to physical athleticism mm. is the trilogy when i was watching that literally i was like <gasps> because i kept thinking as an artist i couldn't watch it as an audience member anymore i was like oh my god like what did they have to go through for her to be able to stand with her heels on her legs, do that drop, and yeah. the fear 
that mm-hmm. those performers had to just put aside and the trust they had to have in each other and in you to say, okay, we'll do this. Because that's asking a lot. <laughs> that's what we do. We ask a lot in the Katora Hall universe. But we had such amazing actresses. We had such amazing body doubles as well. Brandy Evans, who plays Mercedes, so amazingly well. She herself is a dancer. Like she used to dance back up for Snoop Dogg, Katy Perry. Black Twitter is very good. They found this Katy Perry video and they're like, there she goes, there goes Brandy. But <laughs> she was able to learn all of that choreography and she attempted to do all of the tricks. But at the end of the day, our body doubles had to step in and do the more complex things. And it's truly an art form. It is a sport. That's why I keep on using the word athletes. These women worked underneath our choreographer, Jamaica Craft, and they figured out a way to kind of blend the movement. So when our actresses were on the pole, they could switch out and then the body double would come in. And through the powers of editing, it all looked seamless. But I will say, Brandy was always kind of pushing the envelope. And I'd be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. She's not supposed to be two stories up in the air. <laughs> like, I was like, oh my God, insurance. What is insurance going to think of this? <laughs> like, it's that thing what you're saying, bravery. The women, they're brave in a lot of different ways. I think they were brave in terms of bearing their bodies, bearing their souls, and just going there and pushing their bodies to the limit and doing these amazing tricks. Like in the Trinity dance, they do this thing that you're talking about, the surfboard, where you have one dancer on top of the pole. There's one dancer who's kind of clasping the metal pole with her thighs. And then there's another dancer underneath her, upside down, holding her up. There is so much trust that is required. Trust in themselves and trust in each other. And thank God they trusted me and embarked on this amazing journey to put these women up on the pedestal that they belong. Do you feel as though you created new archetypes with this? And what I mean by that is Uncle Clifford is to me like somebody that is an amalgamation of all these different people in different parts of my life put into this one person. And to me, it's perfect that it's put into this person who is representing a non-gender non-binary kind of form because he could remind you or she or they could remind you of your aunt, your Mm -hmm. uncle, because all of that comes out of Uncle Clifford at some point. And then Mercedes' mom, she's a particular kind of archetype that is in our community. Do you consciously make these archetypes or did they just kind of show up? So in terms of Uncle Clifford, you are so dead on. So I always say and Uncle Clifford is a fusion of three of my living ancestors, my mama, my daddy, and my real Uncle Clifford, which is interesting because none of them are queer. However, to be able to put all of what they are into the body of someone who is non-binary, it's just this interesting feat of making sure that there is a person who is masculine and feminine in equal measure. And you're so right. Uncle Clifford is your uncle, is your auntie, is your pimp, is your therapist, like so many things. But definitely Uncle Clifford feels like family. Uncle Clifford is the mama bear and the protector of those women at the club. And that's kind of how I have felt protected by my mom and my dad and my Uncle Clifford. Even though Uncle Clifford feels like an archetype because she is just the clay that went into her is so real. 
to see my mom's like favorite lines, things that she says pop out of Uncle Clifford's mouth has been a joy. Like she gets very tickled when she's like, oh, I said that, didn't I? Like, yes, you did, mom, you did. <laughs> and then like Patrice Woodbine, like, you know, Christianity down south, it is very complicated. It is very complicated. The black church is very complicated. And to be able to kind of show the sexism that actually exists within the black church. I was just happy to do it because we just never get a chance to really talk about it. And we all know that sister in the church (laughs) who can sing and she is moralistic and she's standing on her high ground, but she too has been through some things and she didn't been a pimp herself. So just to see the hypocrisy that exists within her and show how it's definitely connected to our investigation of the hypocrisy in the Black church is something that I'm just so excited to continue doing because there's so much more to explore with a character like her. So, Katori, I have a question from the audience. You are the showrunner for your show. What are some of the leadership tools you needed to draw upon to keep your writers and department heads on the same page with your creative vision? Great question. And what's so interesting is that I don't think I would be the showrunner that I am had it not been for my theater experience. The fact that as a playwright, everyone looks to you. Like you cannot change one word without asking the playwright's permission. And so to be able to come into a space, even though there was a lot for me to learn as a first time showrunner, but I came into that space with so much confidence and clarity of vision. And Mm. I think it had everything to do with the fact that I started out as a playwright first and I knew that I had to create a world that stemmed from me and that I had complete and utter control over. And so that confidence was almost like this transferable skill (laughs) that came with me when I became a showrunner. That to me was the biggest part of the puzzle. And I think number two, just being able to create a family, which I also think comes from the theater. In theater, we rehearse for three weeks, sometimes four weeks. 100%, yeah. And then you make this real quick family. And like those girls who were up on the pole in the Trinity dance, you learn to rely on each other. When I came into TV, it felt a little bit, not competitive, but it felt like everybody's like there, they there to do their job. But I was like, no, 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 no. You have to care about this. This is my baby. And I have to feel comfortable giving you the baby to hold. Yes. And so if I'm going to give you the baby to hold, you need to believe in the baby and take care of the baby like an auntie would, like an uncle would, like a father, like a mother would. Because at some point, I'm going to have to pass the baby off to you. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about everyone as just part of this 300-person family, I think is really, really what made those six months of production so special. And I'm talking about from the PA on up. I tried to know everyone's names just so that people could feel seen. And I feel like if you are seen and you feel like your boss recognizes your work, you're going to work harder. You're going to take care of the baby like it's yours. A sense of ownership. The audience wants to know when season two is coming. That is the question, question, question. can't answer that. I don't know. <laughs> Good answer. Okay. Well, we'll just hope all and pray to be determined. Speaking yeah. of your baby, the South has a very specific rhythm and cadence to it. 
and you have captured that in your show. Is it written that way or did you allow the improv or how did you get that consistent musicality in the show? It is absolutely written that way to mm -hmm. the preposition, to dropping. We don't say dropping. We just make sure that the dialect is so clear on the page. And it's because it is music. Yes. There is a song that is being spoken, even when Southern folk, especially Black Southern folk speak. We often call it slanguage, where it's this mixture of dialect and act and slang all baked into one. It's very heightened, it's poetry. And quite frankly, I think that's how black folks speak. It is so poetic. Like Uncle Clifford has one-liners for days, but Lil Murda, he, as a rapper, he's a poet. So it was such a joy to be able to be super duper, like hyper real and super like overly authentic to the point where people are often saying like, I got to turn on the subtitles. Like, I don't know what these people are saying. I'm from the South. We focus on a very specific region, which was Memphis and North Mississippi, because our fictional town of Chukalisa is a fusion of those places. And the language, this language is a reflection of that. Fantastic. Eric, did you want to jump in or can I keep going? Because you know, I can no, baby, it's all you. I, I, it's, it's all you. <laughs> so when you started to work on the central place, the pank, mm, yeah. did you think of it as another character mm -hmm. in the show? Because it is such a central place. It's an even playing ground. It brings in everybody from all these different walks of life. And when you get there, you're just another trick. So, <laughs> tell Andre that I'm tell I'm tell Parker that like just <laughs> so was it conscious to make that place feel like a character? And if so, I'm asking for a little bit of a spoiler. Uh, Next season, is that character gonna get a facelift? Oh, I, lo I love this question. I love I love where you're going. You have watched every episode I've seen. Oh yes, yeah, she has. She got a lot to say. <laughs> I told you, my girlfriend told me to watch it. And I said, mm -mm. exactly what she said to me was, I know you don't think you're going to like it. Get you some chicken wings, yeah, watch yeah. the show, and then go to the gym when you're done. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> yes, oh, and it was everything. The pank is most definitely a character in itself. It is Uncle Clifford's kingdom. It is the place where women can find freedom for themselves in a world of exploitation. It is carved up into all these different rooms. There's the champagne room, there's the VIP, there's the paradise room where men oftentimes do not leave unscathed in many different ways. So this space, it's this gilded cage where you see the grit and the glitter collide. And we worked so hard with my production designer, Jeffrey Pratt Gordon, to make sure that it had these layers. Like I wanted it to feel like you were walking into my King Tut's tomb where like there's these secret passageways and there's a darkness, but there's also a sexiness and the walls have been painted over and over in many different colors. But at the end of the night, it's the color of pink and purple that Uncle Clifford chooses to project on those walls to make this surreal otherworldly space of escape. And so we just had a grand old time making sure that we were doing right by this world. Like Jeffrey went to a lot of juke joints and we looked at pictures by Deanna Lawson, like spaces that she had 
taking portraits of people. We wanted it to be simple, but still gorgeous and lush because we wanted it to be this kind of sandbox for our characters to create their own kind of imaginary castles. But everything shapeshifts because as we know, a stripper's life is this kind of battle of appearance versus reality. And I really think that our dear Pank, <laughs> that's the way we pronounce it, that Nintendo really reflects those battles. Early on, you talked about from the Tina Turner story, the question being left that Tina herself had. I feel weird saying Tina. I feel like I should say Miss Turner. Why did I stay? Is Mississippi like a little bit of subconscious residue of Tina Turner? So what's so interesting was that Pea Valley started out as a play, Pussy Valley. And the arc of Miss Mississippi was intact. Like she was in an extremely abusive relationship. And so what I found enlightening was that I was able to use what I have witnessed as a woman and the research that I had done on domestic abuse victims on the Tina Turner piece, like Pussy Valley was already percolating before. And so it was kind of like this beautiful birthing experience where both pieces kind of rubbed each other into existence. And the beautiful thing about Miss Mississippi is that like Tina, she is using her art form to find freedom, to find flight, to find escape. Miss Mississippi is doing it on the pole. Tina is doing it with her voice, through music. They actually are on very similar journeys. And so I know everybody's rooting for Miss Mississippi to like leave Derek and get with Diamond. We shall see how that story ends. But at least with Tina's story, like she did leave Ike how physically, but there's still the emotional impact. She still has nightmares. Thinking about that storyline, what was mm-hmm. going to happen with her? Did you already know that you were going to have in the beginning that you were going to have that really tumultuous fight that happened at the end. Did you know that that was going to happen? And if so, was it a conscious choice to cast her partner as a white person so that we could feel it more? Because I think if it would have been a brother, it might've been another kind of conversation about should I leave? Should I not leave? But as the audience watching, you like, you gonna let Diamond fight like that for you and then you're not gonna hook up with him? It's a complicated response, I think, that a lot of women who have been abused deal with. No matter what color their partner is, whether they white or black, this thing of having this knee-jerk reaction to protect their partners. I have seen it with other women in my life. And then I actually used to volunteer at some hospitals in New York City with domestic abuse victims. And oftentimes when the police would come and be like, do you want to press charges? They would be like, no, I don't. So it is just something that is very real. But I do understand the strong reaction that a lot of people have because of him being white. I must pose the question, would it be better if it was a black man beating up? Because then people would be like, oh, why are you painting black men in a bad light? You damned if you do, you damned if you don't. With Miss Mississippi, she has a very interesting backstory when it comes to embracing her beauty and just the issue of colorism. Like she's this beautiful, chocolate, stunning woman played so beautifully by Shannon Thornton. And a lot of dark-skinned Black women, even if they're literally the most beautiful person you've ever seen in your life, sometimes they still have issues with self-worth because our world teaches them that they're not beautiful, that this Eurocentric ideal of beauty, light skin, lighter eyes, good hair, in quotes, is what is defined as beautiful. And this particular character, Keyshawn, 
aka Miss Mississippi, she has gone through that in her life. And so her picking a partner who is white, to me, is this kind of like psychological battle that she's going through to lighten her line, which, you know, some people think that that's, you know, back in the day stuff, but it does still exist in pockets of America where darker skinned women feel as though they want to give their children a better opportunity by doing that, by trying to be either a lighter skinned black man or a white man, they can give that child a better life. Because it is proven that if your skin is closer to white, you do get better opportunities. It is just a proven fact, study after study. And that's because of the pervasiveness of white supremacy and racism in our country and in our society. Wow. Thank you. We're both very big fans. I'm so grateful that you spent some time with us today. Congratulations again on your Tony nomination. I speak for both Joy and myself. We wish you all the luck and love in the world. And we continue to watch your career flourish and thrive. So I want to thank our audience today and apologize. I'm sorry, audience. I know there were a lot of really wonderful questions. Unfortunately, we just couldn't get to them all. So I want to apologize. And I want to say thank you to Joy again. And really, Katori, thank you to you. It's such an honor to meet you and to be in your presence. And if I could reach out and touch your hand, just because you got to touch Tina's. As my son's pre-K-4 teacher does, she goes, that's what I'm giving to you. And in my head, me and Queen Tina are very close. That's as close as I get to it. So thank you so much. Thank you, audience. Thank you for joining us today. Always a wonderful journey with these incredible artists. I'm so grateful to you all. Thank you so much. And that's our show. I can't believe there are only two more shows left this year. Next week, Joy and I will interview Lucas Nath, recipient of the 2020 Lucille Lortel Award for his play Dana H. and playwright of A Doll's House Part Two. Joy and I can't wait to discuss Lucas's process and how he develops new plays. Our interview will air on December 11th. After that, Joy and I will be speaking with a true gentleman and a gentleman, Hubert Point du Jour. Hubert is a New York-based actor who will next be starring in the Showtime series The Good Lord Bird. He has also starred off-Broadway in multiple shows at the Public Theater. On television, he has been seen in Madam Secretary, Blind Spot, and The Path. You will definitely want to hear this interview, which will air on December 18th. So mark your calendars. For more information on these guests and how to attend one of our future recordings next year from the comfort of your home, please visit our website, live at the Lortel. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Theatre. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer, yours truly, associate producer, Jeffrey Schubart. Press is provided by Sin Gogolak, Gogo Public Relations, and our social media is managed by Mia Roddy. Special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz, Alana Canty-Samuel, and Maura Levines. Live at the Lortel is recorded online by Brian Falk. Abacus Entertainment. While theaters are closed, we hope you will consider donating to the COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund at actorsfund.org or your favorite theater company. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>